Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robert Murphy, who is a professor of computational biology, biological sciences, biomedical engineering, and machine learning at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also honorary professor of biology at the University of Freiburg, Germany, fellow of the IEEE and the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering, and a senior member of the International Society for Computational Biology. He founded the Computational Biology Department at Carnegie Mellon and served as its head from 2009 to 2020. His research interests include machine learning of image-derived models of cell organization and analysis and modeling of protein location changes across cell types and diseases. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Gil. Uh, so your passion at CMU is what you call automated science, which is a practice of scientific research without the need for significant human intervention. And the goal is to develop self-driving instruments, you say, along uh, similar lines to self-driving cars. Uh, could, you, could you explain a little bit about what you mean by automated science? Sure. The, to do that, the starting point um, for me is going all the way back to when I first uh, decided to be a, become a scientist. And I was 13 years old and I read a book by Isaac Asimov on the genetic code. Yeah. And that uh, it was a fascinating book. And what appealed to me, uh, what sort of a premise of that book is that we're that we were starting to learn the rules, the codes, uh, the laws, such that we would have the kind of understanding of biological systems that we had of uh, mathematical and physical systems. Yeah. And that really was extremely attractive to me. And that's, that's what led me to, you know, to, to go in the direction that I've gone. But in the, while I was still in graduate school in the 70s, mm -hmm. um, the whole paradigm of 
learning the laws, learning the rules started to really crumble. Um, and what I remember really well from that period was the discovery of reverse transcriptase, which is an enzyme that turns RNA into DNA. Yeah. And the central dogma is DNA makes RNA makes protein. And this was turning that on its head. And mm -hmm. that was followed by many, many, many other examples of biological laws that we thought we had learned, you know, especially starting in the 50s and 60s, uh, that just turned out to be basically suggestions. Um, and that really started the whole community to think about what do we do, uh, you know, in terms of biological uh, research or biomedical research, yeah. given that discovery. And I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners are familiar with that. And in addition, what we learned is not only weren't there any rules, but biological systems are what are called complex systems, systems that are uh, the behavior of which is not apparent from their individual properties, right? Mm -hmm. Systems that have emergent properties that you don't see of the parts. And so in that way, they're very different than things that people make, you know, like cars. You can build a car and, and take the car apart and figure out how all the pieces work um, and put it back together and have an understanding of how the car works. Well, uh, organisms, biological organisms are not like that. And so we began to have this understanding, you know, now many years ago, that biological um, entities were complex systems. And so there was a rise of what's called systems biology. Yeah. And systems biology tried to take a more holistic approach um, and move away from the reductionist approach that had been used previously, the idea of taking things apart into individual pieces and trying to figure them out to try to characterize uh, complex systems. Um, but what I believe was missed through most of that was that when you have a reductionist system, the number of experiments, we'll call them, that you need to do in order to understand a, a reductionist system is just the number of pieces. You could do one experiment per piece or, you know, ballpark, and now you've understood what each of the pieces do, and then you're done. Right. But when you have complex systems, you have interactions among them, and so you have to do many, many um, combinations. To You have to study combinations of things, how they work, what, how they affect things. And so... What began was a lot of experiments in which uh, large-scale studies were done to see what are the effects if I, you know, delete this protein or block this protein um, or add this drug and then try to use that to build models of those complex systems. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea was to replace laws, biological rules, which there didn't seem to be any of, with uh, computational models. Mm -hmm. And the natural temptation that happened at that point is that investigators would do a huge amount of work to collect a lot of data on a very small subset of genes or drugs or, or cell types or whatever it might be, and then try to build a predictive model of what the properties would be of those things for the rest of the things they hadn't measured, the rest of the drugs, the rest of the proteins. 
Right. Um, and there was then, um, to some extent, an understandable but a mistaken idea that arose, which was, well, now that we've built this model, we have to validate it. We have to show that it's correct. Mm -hmm. But that forgets the first rule of modeling, which is all models are wrong. <laughs> right. And there is no way to prove an empirical model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the, the, the very simple fact that if it is an empirical model, if it is not based on underlying rules, you never know whether or not any individual prediction from that model is correct. You might have a sense of most of them being correct, but what ended up happening is that reviewers for papers would ask, validate your model. Right. <laughs> and investigators would say, all right, well, let's see what we can do. We'll take the, the highest confidence prediction from our model and we'll do one more experiment on that. Mm. And if it's right, we'll consider our model to have been validated or maybe we'll do five. But all that that does is prove that specific prediction was correct. Right does nothing to prove the model because you can't prove an empirical model. Now, that kind of brings us to the idea that what experiments are for is not to prove empirical models, but to improve those models. Mm. And yes. therefore, we need to move towards a paradigm, which is we are continuously, iteratively building the best model that we can and using those models where we desire to without having to try to pretend that we're proving the model. We just say, this is the best model we have today. Let's use it. Right. But um, we don't need to try to prove it. Now, how do we go about doing that? So, well, so, so let me ask a quick question on that, Bob. So, so, so two issues there, right? One is uh, biological systems uh, we, have, we haven't been really be able to create very specific rules as to how the systems work. They're very complex, they're very nonlinear, a lot of combinatorial um, issues there. So the design space, if you will, is very, very broad and wide. Uh, and it seems like what we typically do is to take subsets of this design field and come up with a model and we'll have some rationale that that model is working or not. And if it's not working, we'll go find another model and another subset. Uh, and it doesn't really solve the problem. Um, do I understand that correctly? Yes, yes. So there are two pieces there. You know, one, is it just that we haven't learned the rules? And I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, and can we try to build models by simplifying systems and then building models that, that capture the properties of the simple system and then expect that they're going to apply to a larger system. And the answer that I, there I also think is no. So that trying to um, break systems down into simpler systems um, is often something that will not end up le uh, leading to a, a good predictive model. Right. Um, now, you know, we can talk about why you know, it's, it's reasonable or why we can think that there aren't any biological rules. And, and that's by just thinking about the challenges 
that evolution faced over millions of years of how do they adapt an organism or how can an organism adapt to a particular changed environment or new predator or whatever it might be. The, that organism had a set of parts already in it. Mm -hmm. And basically it just had to try to modify those parts to, uh, you know, to accomplish, you know, better survival or whatever is needed. And this is a little bit like, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, there's a scene where, um, the, the NASA engineers, they're trying to build a CO2 scrubber for the, for the capsule. And the, uh, there's a scene where a bunch of NASA engineers, a guy comes in and dumps all the parts that they have in the capsule <laughs> and says, you have to build a scrubber out of this. Well, that's what evolution has been doing for millions of years is taking the set of parts and finding new roles for them, modifying them slightly, you know, connecting them together in ways they weren't connected before. And, while you might have said prior to that, oh, this piece is for X, that's yeah. no longer the case. That that piece is now doing X, Y, Z, and W. Yeah, and the additional and complication there also, Bob, uh, is that when you make that favorable modification, you also pick a bunch of errors. <laughs> that is completely uncorrelated, right? Sure. You get, yes. And it makes it more and more complex and, and, and therefore what may have been rules in the, you know, in the very earliest days of life um, quickly became just suggestions. So what do we do about that? Well, fortunately, there are a lot of automated instruments that have been built uh, beginning largely with the uh, genome project, but during the, the last 20, 30, 40 years of uh, systems biology, automated lab equipment, that has been built both for clinical labs, but also for bi biomedical research labs that enable experiments to be executed very efficiently, very reproducibly on, on large scales. And, and that has been essential to the rise of systems biology to be able to make many, many measurements. Yeah. But what we are typically doing in those cases is picking a subset, a little if you want to think of it as a piece of a large matrix and doing all the experiments in that space mm -hmm. and then trying to make predictions for the rest of that space. Right. And that's where the modeling um, exercise comes in. And if you just take that small chunk, you're probably not going to get a very good predictive model for the rest. So there is a technology um, from machine learning that is appropriate for this type of problem. And that's what's called active machine learning. Yeah. So what we're talking about is a case where we have a space that is too large for us to do all the experiments. When you have complex systems, basically anything can interact with anything. So if you're trying to model the behavior of that thing, you might have to do, you know, essentially untold numbers of experiments and all the combinations of, of you know, 10,000 genes or, you know, Many And then, of course, there are many other things, you know, millions and millions of possible drugs and so on. Yeah. So in that case, um, we need a way that we can explore a subset of that space. And that's what active machine learning is about. And so automated science, it took me a long time to answer your question. But automated science is about combining laboratory automation, which is those instruments that could do or can do biomedical experimentation 
um, usually under computer control and usually uh, very um, reproducibly, and again, at, at usually at high rates, to combine that laboratory automation, which up until now has been controlled by people. So scientists are saying, do this grid of experiments, please. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and people are not good at deciding what experiments to do in an enormous experimental space in order to build the best possible model. That's just not something we are ever going to be good at. Right. Um, it's, and that's what active machine learning is about. You build a computational model and then you use that model to decide what experiments should I do next in expectation that they will improve my model. Right, right. And, and a really simple way of thinking about active machine learning is what's called uncertainty sampling, which is to say, do the experiment that your model has the least confidence in predicting. Yeah. And, and, improve. and that will imp improve upon your model, right? Now you'll at least know, oh, what, what happens for that particular kind of thing. And hopefully you can reason from that or you can uh, predict other things from that. So that's what automated science is from okay. our perspective. Okay. Yeah, Combination you... of laboratory automation and, art and artificial intelligence, active machine learning. Right, right. Yeah, it reminds me um, something, Bob. So uh, this is a, it's a different problem in the physical sciences area. So my graduate thesis at Northwestern in the mid 80s was an expert system uh, that attempted to build design intuition in engineering students uh, by helping them interact with the computer. So, so you see, you'll, you'll get a chuckle out of this. So the, the problem we tackled was to teach a student how to create an engineering design with the lowest cost for a presented problem. So, so that design space is not, it's not huge, but there are features in it and uh, it spans you know, quite a bit. So typically students learn this in the field, how to minimize cost by repeated experiments, right? They make designs, sometimes they make mistakes and over time they get better at it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the idea here was, so this was obviously crude technologies in the 80s. You can imagine IBM PC and a language called Pascal. <laughs> and I suppose yep. it's dead now. Uh, but it's a rules-based system. So essentially, student sits in front of the computer. There is a, there's a design problem. Student makes some choices. And then the machine basically gives guidance as to which direction to head in that design mm -hmm. space, right? So mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. a fresh student or a naive student um, might end up with an exhaustive search of the design space before he or she finds the, the right, right answer. Here, the idea was we can substantially reduce that time to reach that minimum by giving the human, uh, in this case, a student feedback uh, by the computer to, to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a lot easier to do. No machine learning there. It was all heuristics and rules based. A uh, uh, lot easier to do in the in the physical systems space, as you say. But when you get to biological systems, I guess you know the the issue there is we don't have nice rules there. So what you're presented with is a very broad set of features and combinations of features. And oftentimes, not a lot of data, right? Not a lot of those experiments have been done yet. And so you can't really deploy conventional machine learning 
uh, which is you know typically deployed when you have, when you have a lot of data. What you have uh, in biological sciences really is a, a problem definition, and and really a definition of the design space that you want to explore in. Right, and that is really counter to what you hear a lot of times about biology, which is, um, oh, we have we have to have better computational algorithms to deal with the enormous flood of biological information. Well, in some terms, there is a, a, a large flood of information. There's a large amount of information. But if we look at that amount of information relative to the amount of information we could have relevant to uh, 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 th that very large experimental space that we possibly could have, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. Right. Big data in some sense, in some absolute sense, but it is a tiny data in, an, in a relative sense. And that's the reason why we can't just brute force it. Right? It's a little bit like playing Battleship. Yeah. You know, you have, say, for example, think of a Battleship uh, grid as trying to explore the effect of different drugs on different targets within the body, right? So you have a, a matrix of drugs versus um, targets yeah. or your, your, your um, battleship grid. If you play battleship by going A1, B1, C1, D1, you're never going to win. Right, right. Um, but that's what we are doing now. That is the, what we do is we do A1, B1, C1, D1 and try to predict the rest of the board. Yeah where the, the AI approach, the active machine learning approach would be to sample that space and try to build a model that would allow you to do almost random access. Um, well, it is at random access sampling, which is how a, a, an experienced Battleship player will play, right? right. And so um, that's really where we have to move away from, you know, that, that um, paradigm that we know, as you were saying uh, um, uh, before, with respect to your example, you know, moving away from that paradigm, when we know the design principles that that there should be, where instead we just let it be data driven and, and then we use the models to decide what data to get. Yeah. And the, and the difference in automated science, your approach, Bob, is, you know, so, you know, there are things like active learning and reinforcement learning. Uh, in active learning, the idea is uh, really kind of introduce humans back into the process to to um, relabel some of the mistakes the machine has made and make the models better. Uh, and you, uh, automated science is a totally different approach, right? You are basically removing the need for a human in that in that space. Yes, but in active learning. The human is often used as what it's, the term is used there as an oracle, but there's nothing about active learning that requires that that oracle be a human. Oh, yeah. And, and what we've done is replaced that human with a very accurate machine, a very reproducible machine. Right? And, right. Um, but it is the exact same algorithm. It just instead of asking a person, what do you think would happen if I add this drug you know, to, to this cell line, instead of asking a person to do that, we ask a machine, well, tell us what actually did happen. Right. Uh, and, and it also represents a, a, a very nice mixture between 
purely experimental approaches and purely computational approaches. So there are people who have tried for many, many years to just simply build computational models without relying upon that iterative experimental input. Um, and this automated science is the marriage of those two. It's the marriage of the laboratory automation, the large scale experimentation, but doing that more intelligently. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of that is, you know, uh, we believe humans are pretty good at looking at large amounts of data and making decisions. Uh, but what data is telling us, it's not actually true. Um, another example, <laughs> you know, uh, my firm ran a hedge fund in the mid 2000s and it was a machine learning and a bit of reinforcement learning based uh, fully automated system. Uh, but more importantly, what we learned was that humans are the worst in making financial decisions, including trading decisions, you know. Um, but if you if you talk to folks who do um, uh, trading or, or financial decision making in Wall Street and, and elsewhere, they will tell you they are really good at what they do. Uh, <laughs> but if you look at the cross-sectional data, you can see, uh, you know, uh, machines are far superior to humans when there is a lot, lot of dynamic data. You know, we, we never evolved to make uh, stock trades sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> and we, 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 <laughs> exactly. we're kidding ourselves, you know, to say that we are good at it. And there's, there's an analogous case from um, more than, more than uh, about 30 years ago. We started working on using computer vision, machine learning methods to automate the identification of where within a cell a particular protein was found, um, which you would normally do by using fluorescence microscopy. So you use fluorescence microscope to look um, where a particular label protein is within the cell yeah. in order to be able to say, okay, that's in the nucleus or that's in mitochondria or that's in lysosomes. And that task was done by people so that you would label that protein, take a fluorescence micrograph, show it to a person, and the person would say, oh, that's, that's a nuclear protein or that's a mitochondrial protein. Mm -hmm. And we, realizing that there are so many proteins um, that need to be analyzed in, in, in many, many different tissues, thought that this would be something we should automate. And, it, um, and so we used machine learning approaches to, to train a system to be able to distinguish um, using regular supervised learning between different subcellular patterns. Yeah. Well, when I first started talking about that in meetings, you know, everyone would come up and say, "That's you know, that there's no way you should be trying to do this. <laughs> Humans are so much better at this task than people are." Right. Right. So, we then did an experiment where we actually tested how well a human does at that task, and just like you were saying in the financial case, yeah, people are terrible at it. Right. Uh, and and so it's just. We have to recognize the things we're good at and, and not try to do the things we're not good at. Um, yeah, it's and, a, yeah, you know, it's sort of a paradigm uh, change, right? So I always believe that there is a lot of automation out there, there are a lot of, you know, kind of machine learning, deep learning applications. And if you introduce humans into a process, you know, let's say it's 95% automated, and then you introduce a human uh, to take care of the 
you have human as the weak link in that whole process and, <laughs> and it's going to break you know you look at um, you look at airplanes you know these airplanes are very highly automated machines and almost all the accidents that we see in the air are related to human error so in yep. the, in the cockpit really the the weakest link in the cockpit is the human right uh, and so we might we might be getting to a point that uh this idea that you know humans are very good at certain things and hence when the machine fails we need humans to take care of it i think i think it's a false false notion right yep and and instead you just have help the machine get better by having it do more experiments and and have more to learn from Right. do more experiments and in your case and again going back to the automated uh, automated science and scientific experiments we we cannot really do um you know kind of an exhaustive search of the design space so you need an intelligent machine that's able to do that in a very efficient fashion i think that is the trick right yes absolutely absolutely um and now the natural question though becomes then well what 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 is the role of human scientists in all of this yeah. in in an, in an automated science context and there's there is an enormous role still to be played but it is not doing pipetting repetitively which is what a lot of um, biomedical graduate students do you know for many many years is just manually executing experiments we don't need them for that and we obviously don't need them for picking which experiments to do in order to improve a model what we do need them to do is to invent new technologies for measuring cells mm -hmm. or measuring tissues or measuring any biological property because right now we don't have any machine learning algorithms that can invent and invent a new biomedical research technique mm -hmm. right and so we need people to do that yeah But, so it is sorry bob so would oh, you say would you say um so you know i think about so would you say the activities that that should be delegated to a human has to have a very high creative component to it so anything Absolutely. anything that is repeatable anything that is automatable we can we can i think conclusively show machines are going to be a lot better right so that should give us activities that that humans should really be focusing on Absolutely, and anything that is repetitive or anything that is high dimensional, high dimensional, because yeah. humans can't hold high dimensional spaces in their heads, right? Right. But they, right. But if you're inventing a technique, that's a very creative and focused um, activity, uh, and that that's certainly something that uh, people are the only ones that can do that now. Now, there's another thing that we need people to do. Um, And that is if we go back to the analogy of an uh, automated science as being equivalent to a self-driving car, right? We call it self-driving instruments. Yeah. The instruments not only execute the experiments, but they decide how to execute them and how to build the model. Um, when you get into a self-driving car, it doesn't decide where you want to go. Right. You tell it where you want to go. So we still need people to prioritize what kinds of models, what kinds of systems are the highest priorities for us to study, whether it's in order to address particular diseases or to prevent uh, particular syndromes, whatever it might be, 
we still need people to make those decisions about what's the goal? Where am I, where am I going? Um, and yeah. so those are the two things that, that scientists and society needs to be able to do, um, but, but not the rest of the stuff that can be done in automated science. Yeah, I want to push on that a little bit, Bob. So I want to get your perspective on this. So is it possible that, you know, if you go down this track in terms of automated science, is it possible that the machines um, will provide insights back to the human that we haven't really thought about? So in your uh, analogy in terms of self-driving cars, we don't tell the car where to go. Uh, but presumably, you know, when the when the um, autonomous vehicles get to level five, um, one could envision a situation that the the vehicle determines where to go for you because it can learn what you want to do. It can anticipate what you want to do. Um, uh, there are two different things there. One, one is sort of learning. The other is the machine making errors, perhaps. But then those errors result in some sort of insight for the human. That's also possible, right? Well, I, de I definitely agree that, that, for example, the self-driving car could learn that if you're, you get in the car with a bathing suit on, that you want to go to the beach. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and, and so, and it, it could learn to help by your saying, um, you know, take me to the, to the nearest movie that's starting within the next 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. So there are plenty of ways in which you could help you decide where you want to go. But but when you're talking about the goals of automated science, what you're talking about there is, you know, which types of um, diseases should I try to to find um, cures for or find uh, therapies for? Yeah. Right. So the kinds of things because we can't do all of them at the same time. So that's, you know, right, right, um, right. And, and, and those are kind of those are very human priorities, right? To say, well, we're going to prioritize this. For example, right now, we would say we're going to put a lot of priority on COVID-19 re uh, research, right? Yeah. And that's something um, that we, you know, as scientists and as, and as a society make that decision. Yeah, it's, um, this is uh, sort of, may not be practical, but very conceptually though, uh, even when we look at those decisions, how to prioritize uh, resources, um, you know, uh, where to focus on, uh, humans haven't made very good decisions. You know, for example, antibacterial is a good example of this. COVID-19 is a good example of this. Um, we, we tend to sort of fall into, um, you know, uh, creatures of habit. I'll give you another example. Um, I was in a large pharmaceutical company in the mid-90s, and I was on the kind of the business side. So we created an expert system that looks at the entire portfolio of products uh, the company was developing, uh, over $4 billion per year in, you know, invested into products. And, um, you know, the, the expert system, we had to actually predict what's the likelihood that a product is going to succeed, you know, given the characteristics of the product. So things like class of chemical, disease area, geographical location, number of projects adjacent to that project, uh, project leader, and so on. And what we found was that we can actually reasonably predict what's going to happen to that compound, right? So what that tells me is that, you know, there is a process that is sort of stale and stagnant in, in organizations, even in R&D organizations that are supposed to be, you know, driven by creative, uh, creative processes. 
uh, it becomes more like manufacturing processes that are highly repeated with a set of heuristics that are very limited. Um, in which case, I think disrupting that using machines yeah. could be quite beneficial. Yes. So I'm not suggesting which is the current, like you, your experience relates to um, the biases that um, you know, drug uh, pharmaceutical companies may have of saying, well, our last three good drugs were made on this backbone, so let's use that. Yeah. Right? Or I have a hypothesis that this kind of thing would work well for this. I'm not talking about that kind of guidance because that is, is you're absolutely right. That's usually wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the reasons we have now we're approaching negative return on investment for drug development. <laughs> um, right. uh, and so because most of the time people are guiding the process and they're mostly wrong. Right. Um, and so, but, but the question of whether we should put our efforts into a drug for cancer or for diabetes or for COVID, those questions I don't think a computer can answer. Right, uh, right. That's it's, the part of Yeah, there's a horizon problem there. Yeah, I mean, th this is a different problem altogether, which is what are the incentives in the system and how does society make those decisions? And, and that's, a, that's a whole different problem that um, machines won't be able to solve. Uh, but I always wondered, you know, um, even, even those processes that are kind of getting stale, introducing machines could disrupt that. Uh, I don't think you know, <laughs> machines are going to take over decision-making, but at the very least it can disrupt, maybe give some insights back to the human saying, you know, I want to just maximize profits in the next two years. Uh, and that's my resource allocation paradigm. And maybe machines can show that is, you know, that's not a good thing. That's, yeah, it's a very interesting idea and certainly very timely, given as we're, as the trend has been that um, fewer and fewer drugs are being developed successfully and they're costing more and more. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it, there's a disruption, it, it, you know, is needed for sure. Yeah. And COVID-19, for example, I don't know if, if, um, if you're doing any work in that area. I know that there are a lot of uh, computational approaches uh, they are trying to uh, to solve this problem, uh, but this may not be a single problem, right? Uh, we may yeah. have a series of problems coming in the future. So then there is a question around, you know, there has to be some process, some, some kind of a new process for us to continue inventing new things. And uh, I wondered, you know, are, are you doing any work in that area? Well, I'm not doing anything on COVID right now. Uh, yeah. And, but I do think that you're right that it may end up being way more complicated than we thought. And um, one of the things that automated science can do is to allow us to build larger and larger scale models yeah. that will take into account more and more things. Um, and then you, um, it may be a matter of luck as to whether your current large scale models happen to have any insight in a particular new disease, right? And, and one of the problems with COVID is that it really seems to have hit a niche that we didn't know very much about. Um, but that doesn't mean that you might not, not be so unlucky the next time that, you know, that some, the next thing that comes along, there is relevant uh, information in a structured way rather than uh, in the form of what people think are good solutions 
but rather data-driven and predictive model-driven. Yeah, so there are some attributes here, right, Bob, in automated science uh, that's a bit like uh, DeepMind, Google's DeepMind. So, mm-hmm. if, you know, if we have, let's say, we have wasted computing resources that are sitting, sitting around, you know, uh, not doing anything, um, are there opportunities in this approach to say, um, you know, let, let it let it basically go explore spaces, uh, even without any, you know, kind of specific objective function? Yes. So that gets into the whole guts behind active learning um, and AI in terms of what are the strategies to do active learning? Yeah. And um, exploration is is clearly an extremely important aspect of that. But what you're doing typically in active learning is trading exploration um, and cost, right? And so yeah. um, when, when you can do a quick comp- calculation, you know, with idle cycles, uh, that's one thing. But if you actually have to do a physical experiment, yeah, um, that's, a, that's something else, right? Now, there's certainly need for computing in order to try to build and improve upon the models to choose that next experiment. Um, but it's not like um, we have excess uh, laboratory automation capacity sitting around that idle, right? And in, right. Um, my suspicion is, well, actually I shouldn't say that because there are places that have automated laboratory equipment that do sit idle in between mm. um, large cycles of doing, you know, they do a massive set of experiments and then they spend six months analyzing the data and the instruments are sitting idle. Yeah. So there, there may be something like that. Yeah, especially in life sciences context. Um, you know, um, obviously pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies have made a lot of investments into these, uh, into these types of um, instruments. And like you say, there is sort of a sequential process that they go through. Experiments, data analysis, decision, experiments, data analysis, decision. And those cycles... Uh, like you say, may have may 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 give a lot of uh, idle time for the instruments. Uh, then the question is, you know, are there ways to? I know that you know that search for extraterrestrial um, intelligence. Uh, they they tried to use you know kind of excess computing power, right? They they took the data and gave gave it out to a lot of computers. Uh, right. I wonder if there's something like that uh, that could be done that. Yeah, I think it's much more complex, right? These instruments have to be set up. Um, it's yep. not like a computer. Yeah. But but um, laboratory automation has gotten to the point where you can run, and pharmaceutical companies do this, where you can run a lab 24 hours a day generating experiments. And with an automated science approach, we can shorten that cycle time you were talking about. So instead of collecting that much of data and then, you know, wait three months while you analyze it or six months while you wait analyze it, that process can be happening continuously so that you're not doing monolithic experiments and then monolithic analysis, but rather doing that iteratively continuously. Yeah, another thing I wondered about is, again, in a pharmaceutical context, maybe this is something they should do in parallel. So there's a status mm-hmm. quo, you know, status quo process that's largely driven by, not largely, but, but driven by humans, let's say, uh, perhaps this type of a process is in parallel to that. Um, and, you know, um, recently I uh, talked with another guest about, we are seeing two types of intelligence, right? And I would like love to get your insight into this. So 
the way that um, machines are building intelligence appeared to be very different from human intelligence, you know, very different, right? They need large amounts of data. They do some classifications. They do some unsupervised machine learning type, uh, type thing. Uh, and, and so we might be coming to a point that we have machines become a sort of a different species, right? So it is, yeah, the, its intelligence is quite different from human intelligence, both in construct and format and process, which would then imply that getting that diversity into R&D processes could be quite beneficial. Yes, although you're starting to get outside my, uh, the scope of my... <laughs> My thoughts. <laughs> Sounds. I do want to mention yeah. in terms of parallel. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, that I believe is needed is that more people need to be hired into pharmaceutical and biotech industries who are aware of this paradigm of automated science and can execute it. Yes. And that's one of the reasons we started a master's program in automated science last year. Um, and and to be able to train people in this intersection between laboratory automation yeah. and um, machine learning. It's a very complex- so go, out and, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, there's a very complex set of skills mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you need to understand the domain really well. And then you need to understand, you know, the, the computing aspects of it and the instrumentation aspect of it. So. It is really a very, very complex skill. And it, it's, I agree with you, sorely lacking, I think, in life sciences companies. Yep. And we already have the first year of students have completed their first year and they'll be graduating in May. So cool. we're looking forward <laughs> to where they go. Excellent. So in conclusion, Bob, you know, when you look forward the next five years uh, in your domain, you know, automated science and more generally artificial intelligence, um, what are your expectations? Where, where do you think we will have the biggest, um, you know, kind of uh, um, discovery, no, not discovery, but innovation, the biggest innovation that is practical? I think that it will come from um, approaches that are not based on uh, hypotheses or human intuition or, or somebody has a gut feeling this is the way to go. Um, more and more, they will be um, driven by computational models that discover things that nobody um, had any prior inkling of. Uh, and th that that's the transition that will happen is to people being comfortable with that. Mm. That, you know, that um, heads of, of pharma and heads of biotech um, will be comfortable with the idea. No, I don't need to have the world's expert on XYZ to tell me mm -hmm. what I should do. I can, I can determine that empirically and use predictive models for that. I think that's the biggest thing that I expect to see over the next five years. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big change. Um, it's a cultural sort of transformation and Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like technology uh, will be far ahead of sort of the organizational changes that we need uh, to make that happen. But I, I fully agree with you. I think uh, that is inevitable, just a matter of time. Yep. So this has been uh, this has been great, Bob. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me and uh, and good luck with uh, with continued success in this area of automated science.
Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.